of all men that I ever saw. He had the tenderest sympathy with persons laboring under religious despondency. When on a journey, I've known him to travel miles out of his way to converse with a sufferer of this kind, and his manner was most tender and affectionate in speaking to such. I have remarked that persons who gave no symptoms of this disease until the decline of life have then fallen under its power, owing to some change in the constitution at that period, or some change in their active pursuits. I recollect two cases of overwhelming melancholy in persons who appeared in their former life as remote from it as any that I ever knew. The first was a man of extraordinary talents and eloquence, bold and decisive in his temper, and fond of company and good cheer. When about fifty-five or six years of age, without any external cause to produce the effect, his spirits began to sink and feelings of melancholy to seize upon him. He avoided company, but I had frequent occasion to see him, and sometimes he could be engaged in conversation when he would speak as judiciously as before, but he soon reverted to his dark melancholy mood. On one occasion he mentioned his case to me and observed with emphasis that he had no power whatever to resist the disease and said he with despair in his countenance, I shall soon be utterly overwhelmed. And so it turned out for the disease advanced until it ended in the worst form of mania and soon terminated his life. The other was the case of a gentleman who had held office in the American army during the Revolutionary War. About the same age or a little later, he lost his cheerfulness which had never been interrupted before, and by degrees sank into a most deplorable state of melancholy, which, as in the former case, soon ended in death. In this case, the first thing which I noticed was a morbid sensibility of the moral sense, which filled him with remorse for acts which had little or no moral turpitude attached to them. I would state, then, as a result of all my observation, that religion in its regular and rational exercise has no tendency to melancholy or insanity, but the contrary and that religion is the most effectual remedy for this disease, whatever be its cause. But melancholy persons are very apt to seize on the dark side of religion as affording food for the morbid state of their minds. True Christians, as being subject to like diseases with others, may become melancholy, but not in consequence of their piety, but in this melancholy condition they are in a more comfortable as well as in a safer state than others. They may relinquish all their hopes, but they cannot divert themselves of their pious feelings. I have said nothing respecting the supposed tendency of strong religious feelings to produce insanity, for what has been said respecting melancholy is equally applicable to this subject. Indeed, I am of opinion that melancholy is a species of insanity, and in its worst form the most appalling species, for in most cases insane persons seem to have many enjoyments arising out of their strange misconceptions. But the victim of melancholy is miserable. He is often suffering under the most horrible of all calamities, black despair. When a child I used to tremble when I read Bunyan's account in his Pilgrim of the man shut up in the iron cage. And in the year 1791, when I first visited the Pennsylvania hospital, I saw a man there who had arrived a few days before, said to be in religious melancholy and to be in despair. He had made frequent attempts on his own life, and all instruments by which he might accomplish that direful purpose were carefully removed. Having never been accustomed to see insane persons, the spectacle of so many deprived of reason made an awful impression on my mind. But although some were raving and blaspheming in their cells, and others confined in straitjackets, the sight of no one so affected me as that of this man in despair. 
Although near half a century has elapsed since I beheld his sorrowful countenance, there is still a vivid picture of it in my imagination. We spoke to him, but he returned no answer, except that he once raised his despairing eyes, but immediately cast them down again. Whether this man had been the subject of any religious impressions, I did not learn. But this one thing I must testify, that I never knew the most pungent convictions of sin to terminate in insanity, and as to the affections of love to God and the lively hope of everlasting life producing insanity, it is too absurd for anyone to believe it. I do not dispute, however, that enthusiasm may have a tendency to insanity, and some people are so ignorant of the nature of true religion as to confound it with enthusiasm. I will go further and declare that, after much thought on the subject of enthusiasm, I am unable to account for the effects produced by it in any other way than by supposing it is a case of real insanity. Diseases of this class are the more dangerous because they are manifestly contagious. The very looks and tones of an enthusiast are felt to be powerful by everyone. And when the nervous system of anyone is in a state easily susceptible of emotions from such a cause, the dominion of reason is overthrown, and wild imagination and irregular emotion govern the infatuated person, who readily embraces all the extravagant opinions and receives all the disturbing impressions which belong to the party infected. Without a supposition such as the foregoing, how can you account for the fact that an educated man and popular preacher and a wife, intelligent and judicious above most, having a family of beloved children, should separate from each other, relinquish all the comforts of domestic life, and a pleasant and promising congregation to connect themselves with the people who are the extreme of all enthusiasts, the Shakers. But such facts have been witnessed in our own times and in no small numbers. In a town in New Hampshire, the writer when in the neighborhood was told of the case of a young preacher who visited the Shaker settlement out of curiosity to see them dance in which exercise their principal worship consists. But while he stood and looked on, he was seized with the same spirit and began to shake and dance too, and never returned but remained in the society. But there being no demand for his learning or preaching talents, whatever they might be, and he being an able-bodied man, they employed him in building some stone fences. This species of infatuation, which is called enthusiasm, is apt to degenerate into bitterness and malignity of spirit towards all who do not embrace it, and then it is termed fanaticism. This species of insanity, as I must be permitted to call it, differs from other kinds in that it is social or affects large numbers in the same way and binds them together by the link of close fraternity. It agrees with other kinds of monomania in that the aberration of mind relates to one subject while the judgment may be sound in other manners. No people know how to manage their agricultural, horticultural, and mechanical business more skillfully and successfully than the Shakers. And a newer sect of Mormons would soon settle down to peaceable industry if the people would let them alone. This country promises to be the theater of all conceivable forms of enthusiasm and fanaticism. And as long as these misguided people pursue their own course without disturbing other people, they should be left to their own delusions as it relates to the civil power. But if any of them should be impelled by their fanatical spirit to disturb the peace, they should be treated like other maniacs. The causes of melancholy and insanity, whether physical or moral, cannot easily be explored. The physician will speak confidently about a lesion of the brain. But when insane persons have been subjected to a post-mortem examination, the brain very seldom exhibits any appearance of derangement. 
The casuist, on the other hand, thinks only of moral causes and attributes the disease to such of this class as are known to have existed or flees to hypotheses which will account for everything. There is a remarkable coincidence, however, which has fallen under my observation between those who assign a moral and those who assign a physical cause for melancholy and madness in regard to one point. Some 40 or 50 years ago, the writer about the same time read Thomas Shepard's Sincere Convert and Jaden's Robe on Religious Melancholy, and he noticed that they both described the deep and fixed depressions the spirits frequently met with to a secret criminal indulgence. In the statistics of several insane asylums and penitentiaries, which have been published recently, the most of the cases of insanity are confidently ascribed to the same thing as its physical cause. This increase in evil is of such a nature that we cannot be more explicit. Those who ought to know the facts will understand the reference. It must, after all, be admitted that the claims of intemperance and the use of intoxicating drinks to a deleterious influence on the reason stand in the foremost rank. But the madness produced by this cause is commonly of short duration. I do not speak of the loss of reason, which is the immediate effect of alcohol on the brain, but of that most tremendous form of madness called delirium tremens. I have said that it was short because it is commonly the last struggle of the human constitution under the influence of a dreadful poison which has now consummated its work and death soon steps in and puts an end to the conflict. After spending so much time in speaking of melancholy as a disease, I anticipate the thoughts of some good people who will be ready to say, What? Is there no such thing as spiritual desertion, times of darkness and temptation, which are independent of the bodily temperament? to which I answer that I fully believe that there are many such cases, but they deserve a separate consideration and do not fall within the compass of my present design. The causes, symptoms, and cure of such spiritual maladies are faithfully delineated by many practical writers, and although these cases are entirely distinct from melancholy, they assume in many respects similar symptoms, and by the unskillful casuists are confounded with it. These two causes, as I have before intimated, may often operate together and produce a mixed and very perplexing case, both for the bodily and spiritual physician. After all that has been said, the fact with which we commence is that religious exercises are very much modified by the temperament, and in some cases by the idiosyncrasy of the individual. The liquor put into an old cask commonly receives a strong tincture from the vessel. Old habits, although a new governing principle is introduced into the system, do not yield at once, and propensities apparently extinguish or apt to revive and give unexpected trouble. It is a comfortable thought that these bodies cannot go with the saints to heaven until they are completely purified. What proportion of our present feelings will be dropped with the body we cannot tell. How a disembodied spirit will perceive, feel, and act we shall soon know by consciousness. But if ever so many of the departed should return and attempt to communicate to us their present mode of existence, it would be all in vain. The things which relate to such a state are inconceivable and unspeakable. What Paul saw in the third heaven, he dare not or he could not communicate, but he did not know whether he saw these wonderful things in the body or out of the body. This is a thing known as he intimates only to God. Early Religious Impressions there is no necessity for any other proof of native depravity than the aversion which children early manifest to religious instruction and to spiritual exercises. From this cause it proceeds that many children who have the opportunity of good religious education learn scarcely anything of the most important truth of Christianity. 
If they are compelled to commit the catechism to memory, they are wont to do this without ever thinking of the doctrines contained in the words which they recite, so that when the attention is at any time awakened to the subject of religion as a personal concern, they feel themselves to be completely ignorant of the system of divine truth taught in the Bible. Yet even to these truths committed to memory are now of great utility. They are like a treasure which has been hidden but is now discovered. Of two persons under conviction of sin, one of whom has had sound religious instruction and the other none, the former will have an unspeakable advantage over the latter in many respects. Many children, and especially those who have pious parents who speak to them of the importance of salvation, are the subjects of occasional religious impressions of different kinds. Sometimes they are alarmed by hearing an awakening sermon, or by the sudden death of a companion of their own age. Or again they are tenderly affected even to tears from a consideration of the goodness and forbearance of God, or from a representation of the love and sufferings of Christ. There are also seasons of transporting joy, which some experience, especially after being tenderly affected with a sense of ingratitude to God for His wonderful goodness, in sparing them and bestowing so many blessings upon them. These transient emotions of joy cannot always be easily accounted for, but they are commonly preceded or accompanied by a hope or persuasion that God is reconciled and will receive them. In some cases it would be thought that these juvenile exercises were indications of a change of heart. Did they not pass away like the morning cloud or early dew so as to be obliterated from the mind which experienced them? Some undertake to account for these religious impressions merely from the susceptible principle of human nature in connection with the external instructions of the word and some striking dispensations of providence. But the cause assigned is not adequate because the same circumstances often exist when no such effects follow. Others ascribe them to the evil spirit who is ever seeking to deceive and delude unwary souls by inspiring them with a false persuasion of their good estate while they are in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity. While I would not deny that Satan may take advantage of these transient exercises to induce a false hope, I cannot be persuaded that he produces these impressions, for often the persons before experiencing them were as careless and stupid as he could wish them to be, and because the tendency of these impressions is salutary. The youth thus affected becomes more tender in conscience, forsakes known sin before indulged, has recourse to prayer, and feels strong desires after external happiness. These are not what Satan would affect if he could, unless we could suppose that he was operating against himself, which your Savior has taught us to be impossible. I am of opinion, therefore, that these transient impressions should be ascribed to the common operations of the Spirit of God, may have some inexplicable connection with the future conversion and salvation of the person. There is a common practical error in the minds of many Christians in regard to this manner. They seem to think that nothing has any relation to the conversion of the sinner but that which immediately preceded this event. And the Christian is ready to say, I was awakened under such a sermon and never had rest until I found it in Christ, making nothing of all previous instructions and impressions. So when a revival occurs under the awakening discourses of some evangelists, people are ready to think that he only is a successful preacher whose labors God owns and blesses, 
whereas he does but bring forth to maturity feelings and convictions which have been long secretly forming and growing within the soul, but so imperceptibly that the person himself was little sensible of any change. It may be justly and scripturally compared to a growing crop. After the seed is sown, it vegetates, we know not how, and then it receives daily the sun's influence, and from time to time refreshing showers. But about the time of earing, and after a long drought, there comes a plentiful shower, by means of which nutriment is afforded for the formation of the full corn in the ear. No one will dispute the importance and efficacy of this last shower in maturing the grain, but had there been no cultivation and no showers long before, this had never produced any effect. Whether those who are never converted are the subject of these religious impressions, as well as those who afterwards are brought to faith in Christ, is a question not easily answered. That they experience dreadful alarms and pungent convictions at times, and also tender drawings cannot be doubted. But whether those chosen in Christ are not, in their natural state, subject to impressions which others never experience, must remain undetermined, since we know so little of the real state of the hearts of most men. But as there is undoubtedly a special providence exercised by Christ over those sheep not yet called into the fold, I cannot but think it probable that they are often influenced by the Holy Spirit in a peculiar manner to guard them against fatal errors and destructive habits and to prepare them by degrees to receive the truth. We know very little, however, of what is passing in the minds of thousands around us, the zealous preacher often concludes and laments that there is no impression on the minds of his hearers, when, if the covering of the human heart could be withdrawn, he would be astonished and confounded at the variety and depth of the feelings experienced. Those impressions which manifest themselves by a flow of tears are not the deepest, but often very superficial, while the most awful distresses of the soul are entirely concealed by a kind of hypocrisy which men early learn to practice, to hide their feelings of a religious kind from their fellow creatures. A man may be so much in despair as to be meditating suicide when his nearest friends know nothing of it. The attempt at immediate effect and the expectation of it is one of the errors of the present times. Indeed, it is the very watchword of a certain party. But let us not be misunderstood. We do not mean to say that all men are not under indispensable obligations immediately to obey all the commands of God. Concerning this, there can be no difference of opinion. But the persons to whom we refer seem to think that nothing is done towards the salvation of men, but at the moment of their conversion, and that every good effect must be at once manifest. Perhaps someone may infer that we believe in a gradual regeneration, and that special grace differs from common only in degree. But such an inference would be utterly false, for there can be no medium between life and death. But we do profess to believe and maintain that there is a gradual preparation by common grace for regeneration, which may be going on from childhood to mature age, and we believe that, as no mortal can tell the precise moment when the soul is vivified, and as a principle of spiritual life in its commencement is often very feeble, so it is an undoubted truth that the development of the new life in the soul may be and often is very slow, and not infrequently that which is called conversion is nothing else 
but a more sensible and vigorous exercise of a principle which has long existed, just as the seed underground may have life, and may be struggling to come forth to open day, but it may meet with various obstructions and unfavorable circumstances which retard its growth. At length, however, it makes its way through the earth and expands its leaves to the light and air and begins to drink in from every source at nutriment which it needs. No one supposes, however, that the moment of its appearing above ground is the commencement of its life, but this mistake is often made in the analogous case of the regeneration of the soul. The first clear and lively exercise of faith and repentance has made the date of the origin of spiritual life whereas it existed in a feeble state and put forth obscure acts long before. I find, however, that I am anticipating a discussion intended for another part of this work. There are, alas, many who seem to remain unmoved amidst all the light and means by which most are surrounded in this land, and these too are often found in the families of the pious, and do actually pass through more than one revival without partaking of any unusual influence, or experiencing any strong religious feeling. Esau had a title to the birthright, and yet he so despised this peculiar blessing that he actually sold it for a mess of pottage. Abraham, too, had his Ishmael, and Jacob a troop of ungodly children. Eli's sons were wicked in the extreme, and Samuel's came not up to what was expected from the children of such a father. Among all David's children, we read of none who feared God but Solomon. Those, however, who become extremely wicked have often resisted the strivings of the Spirit, and not infrequently the most impious blasphemers and atheists have once been much under the influence of religious light and feeling, but quenching the Spirit have been given up to believe a lie and to work all uncleanness with greediness. We have said that there are some persons who grow up to manhood without experiencing any religious impressions except mere momentary thoughts of death and judgment. And these may be persons of a very amiable disposition and moral deportment. And these very qualities may be, in part, the reason of their carelessness. They commit no gross sins, the remembrance of which wounds the conscience. Being of a calm and contented temper, and fond of taking their ease, they shun religious reflection and turn away their thoughts from the truth when it is presented to them from the pulpit. Some persons of this description have been awakened and converted at mature age and have then confessed that they lived as much without God as atheists and seldom, if ever, extended their thoughts to futurity. Of course, they utterly neglected secret prayer and lived in the midst of gospel light without being in the least affected by it. There is, moreover, another class who seem never to feel the force of religious truth. They are such as spend their whole waking hours in the giddy whirl of amusement or company full of health and spirits and sanguine in their hopes of enjoyment from the world, they put away serious reflection as the very bane of pleasure. The very name of religion is hateful to them, and all they ask of religious people is to let them alone, that they may seize the pleasures of life while within their reach. If we may judge from appearances, this class is very large. We find them in the majority in many places of fashionable resort. The theater, the ballroom, and the very streets are full of such, they flutter gaily along and keep each other in countenance, while they are strangers to all grave reflection, even in regard to the sober concerns of this life. 
If a pious friend ever gets the opportunity of addressing a word of serious advice to them, their politeness may prevent them from behaving rudely, but no sooner is his back turned than they laugh him to scorn and hate and despise him for his pains. They habituate themselves to think that religion is an awkwardly unseemly thing and wonder how any person of sense can bear to attend to it. Very often this high reverie of pleasure is short. In such a world as this, events are apt to occur which dash the cup of sensual delight while it is at the lips. Death will occasionally intrude even upon this gay circle and put a speedy end to their unreasonable merriment. Oh, how sad is the spectacle to see one of the votaries of fashion suddenly cut down and carried to the grave. When mortal sickness seizes upon such persons, they are very apt to be delirious, if not with fever, yet with fright. And their officious but cruel friends make it their chief study to bar out every idea of religion, and to flatter the poor dying creature with the hope of recovery, until death has actually seized his prey. Such an event produces a shock in the feelings of survivors of the same class, but such is the buoyancy of their feelings, and their forgetfulness of mournful events, that they are soon seen dancing along the slippery path with as much insane thoughtlessness as before. Nothing which ever occurs tends so much to disturb the career of this multitude as when one of their number is converted unto God. At first they are astounded and for a moment pause, but they soon learn to ascribe the change to some natural cause or to some strange capriciousness of temper or disappointment in earthly hopes. Very soon you will see them as much estranged from such an one, although before an intimate friend, as if he had never been of the number of their acquaintances. Often his nearest relatives are ashamed of him, and as much as possible shun his company. How absurd, then, is it for any one to pretend that men naturally love God, and only need to know his character to revere it? If there be a truth established beyond reasonable question by uniform experience, it is that lovers of pleasures are the enemies of God. The class of speculating money-making business-doing men is probably as numerous and though more sober in their thoughts, yet as far from God and as destitute of religion as those already described. But as we find these not commonly among the youth but middle age, we shall not attempt to delineate their character or describe their feelings. I must return to the consideration of early religious impressions which do not terminate in a sound conversion to God. Some five and forty years ago, I was frequently in a family where the parents, though respecters of religion, were not professors. They had a sweet, amiable little daughter, eight or ten years of age, who had all the appearance of eminent piety. She loved the Bible, loved preaching and religious people, was uniform and constant in retiring for devotional exercises, and spoke freely when asked of the feelings of her own mind. I think I never had less doubt of anyone's piety than of this little girl's. There was no forwardness, no pertness, nor any assumption of sanctimonious airs. All with simplicity, modesty, and consistency. She was grave but not demure, solemn and tender in her feelings without affectation. She applied for admission to the communion, and who dare refuse entrance into the fold to such a dear lamb? Here my personal acquaintance ends, but years afterwards upon inquiry, I found that when she grew to womanhood, she became gay and careless and entirely relinquished her religious profession. My Methodist neighbor, I know, if he had the chance to whisper in my ear, would say, I have no difficulty in accounting for this case. She was a child of God, but fell from grace. 
but I've never been able to adopt this method of explaining such phenomena. There are few truths of which I have a more unwavering conviction than that the sheep of Christ for whom he laid down his life shall never perish. I do believe, however, that grace may for a season sink so low in the heart into which it has entered, and be so overborne and buried up, that none but God can perceive its existence. Now that may have been the fact in regard to this dear child, for her later history is unknown to me. She may, for aught I know, be still alive, and be now a living, consistent member of Christ's church, and may possibly peruse these lines. Though if she should, she may not recognize her own early features, taken down from memory after the lapse of so many years. But the picture is not one of person only, but of many differing only in trivial circumstances. There's a footnote here that I must read in this book. Since the above was published, an aged friend who recognized the person spoken of informed me that this lady, after some time spent in gaiety, resumed her profession of religion, and until her decease exhibited good evidence of genuine piety. I retain a distinct recollection of another case of a still earlier date, and where the history is more complete. An obscure youth, the son of religious parents, in a time of awakening, seemed to have his attention drawn to the concerns of his soul, so that he seriously and diligently attended on, on all religious meetings. He had the appearance of deep humility, and though free to speak when interrogated, was in no respect forward or self-sufficient. Indeed, he was scarcely known or noticed by the religious people who were in the habit of attending prayer meetings. It happened that on an inclement evening, very few were present, and none of those who were accustomed to take a part in leading the devotional exercises. The person at whose house a meeting was held, not wishing to dismiss a few who were present with a single prayer, asked this youth if he would not attempt to make a prayer. He readily assented and performed this service with so much fervor, fluency, and propriety of expression that all who heard it were astonished. From this time he was called upon more frequently than any other, and often in the public congregation, for some people preferred his prayers to any sermons, and I must say that I never heard anyone pray who seemed to me to have such a gift of prayer. The most appropriate passages of Scripture seemed to come to him in rapid succession, as if by inspiration. Now the common cry was that he ought to be taken from the trade which he was learning, for he was an apprentice, and be put to study. The thing demanded by so many was not difficult to accomplish. He began a regular course of academical studies, and his progress, though not extraordinary, was respectable. But alas, how weak is man! How deceitful is the heart! This young man soon began to exhibit evidence too plain that conceit and self-confidence were taking root and growing very rapidly. He became impatient of opposition, arrogant towards his superiors, and unwilling to yield to reproof, administered in the most paternal spirit. When the time came to enter upon trials for the ministry, the presbytery to which he applied refused to receive him under their care. But this solemn rebuff, instead of humbling him, only provoked his indignation. And, as if in despite of them, he turned at once to the study of another profession, in which he might have succeeded had he remained moral in temperament in his habits. And falling into bad company, he became dissipated and soon came without any known reformation to a premature end. Now suppose this man had been permitted to enter the ministry. The probability is that, though his unchristian temper would have done much evil, yet he would have continued in the sacred office to his dying day. Let him that thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. About the author, Archibald Alexander. The venerable Reverend Dr. Archibald Alexander, 
a vice president of this society, that's the American Tract Society, and for three years from 1842, a member of the publishing committee, and who was ever a firm friend and counselor, has rested from his labors. Almost 40 years he was professor in the theological seminary at Princeton. 60 years he labored in the ministry, and he died peacefully in the 80th year, October 22, 1851. While the secretary in the publishing department was reading with him portions of Flavel's Method of Grace, he said with a glowing tender spirit, All this carries me back to past scenes as if they were but yesterday. When I was a thoughtless youth, I passed some time in a family where was a venerable pious lady whose sight was dim, but who was greatly attached to Flavel's works and often requested me to read them to her. I read to her this very work. I would read till the truth pierced my own heart and affected me so that I was obliged to stop when I would excuse myself till the next day. I would then read again and again be obliged to stop. Those impressions never left me till I found peace in Christ. A communication in the Messenger of February 1851 refers to the sermon on the word stand and Flavel's knocking at the door, especially blessed to him. And these works of Flavel was a type of the great practical views of theology from which he never swerved till on his dying bed he uttered to his family these memorable words, All my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Fired with this glorious theme, he went out at the age of 20 as a missionary through the mountainous regions of central and western Virginia, his native state, and preached to the ignorant and perishing with great power and success the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In prosecuting these labors, two great principles became fixed in his mind, the value of sound practical books and evangelical writings and the necessity of going to the destitute and tendering the gospel to them at their homes. He saw both in this society and its culprator's system, and cheerfully gave his cordial love, counsel, cooperation, and support to the close of his useful life. We shall doubtless gratify our readers by some memorial of this distinguished servant of Christ, whom we loved as a father, and whose cooperation we enjoyed to the very close of his long and useful life. He was born April 17, 1772, in Rockbridge County in the Valley of Virginia, between the Blue Ridge and the Alleghenies, and was of Scotch descent, both his parents having immigrated first to the north of Ireland and then to this country. He received a classical education at Liberty Hall near the residue of his parents, under the charge of Reverend William Graham, with whom he studied theology two years when at the age of about twenty he was commissioned to preach the gospel. Before professing Christ, he was led through severe spiritual conflicts that he might know how to sympathize with others and guide them in the right way. And when Christ was revealed to him in his fullness, and he was commissioned as a herald of the cross, he went out immediately as a missionary preacher through the mountainous and destitute regions of his native state, with a glowing heart proclaiming the way of life to the ignorant and destitute, and gathering the lost into the fold of Christ, preaching without notes, with strange discrimination for one so young, and with an energy of thought and pathos of delivery rare in the young or aged, he spread the doctrines of divine truth wherever he went. These arduous evangelical labors doubtless exerted an influence in training his mind to that clearness and simplicity, as well as richness of thought and expression, which characterize his preaching, his instructions, his conversation, and his extensive writing through life. He regarded it as a high compliment when told of a plain woman who had heard him in a destitute place and said, I guess he ain't a very lorn man. 
At 25, he was elected president of Hampton Sydney College in his native state and became also pastor of three adjacent churches. He married a daughter of Reverend James Waddell, the eloquent blind preacher celebrated in the sketches by William Wirt. At his death, she survived him, as did all their children, an only daughter and six sons, three of whom are clergymen, one a distinguished professor at Princeton, and another Reverend Dr. James W. Alexander, pastor in New York City. From the age of 34 to 40, he was an able and beloved pastor in Philadelphia till 1812 when he was called to lay the foundations of the Theological Seminary in Princeton. He was then the only professor, but was soon joined by his loved colleague, the Reverend Dr. Miller, whose funeral sermon after 37 years of harmonious labor he preached in January 1850. For the whole term of his connection with that seminary, almost 40 years, he labored incessantly till his last illness of a few weeks. Fulfilling the duties of his professorship, watching over the students as a father, and guiding in an imminent degree by his affectionate advice their future course, constantly appealed to for counsel in all the varied interests of the churches and of the cause of benevolence, and with a discernment of character, a sound practical judgment, a modesty and humility, and a singleness of purpose for the welfare of the Redeemer's kingdom, that gained universal confidence. It was kindly ordered that the Synod of New Jersey, of which he was a member, and out of which he named on his bed of weakness 115 who had been his pupils, were in session at Princeton when he died, and were permitted with a great concourse of clergymen and citizens to unite in the solemnities of his funeral. Death never appeared to me so delightful as now when it is near. He said to those around his sick bed, and often his strength allowed, he spoke of the peace that dwelt in his soul. The records of his last hours will be precious to the church, and they will be found to illustrate and confirm the experience he has written in his sermons and letters as a fitting close of his life of faith. His great work on the evidence in the canon of Scripture, several other excellent treatises, and all the productions of his active and able pen bear the impress of his singleness of purpose to honor Christ. This Christian patriarch of fourscore years is one of the few whose fame and usefulness are immortal. Having given a long life of wise and constant devotion to the Redeemer's kingdom, he has bequeathed to the church a name redolent with piety and honor. We would gratefully cherish the bequest and contribute our humble influence to embalm it in every Christian heart. Perhaps we cannot better subserve the purpose than by a brief record of our impressions of the person, character, and influence of the venerable man who has so recently passed to his heavenly rest. Dr. Alexander was of medium height, rotund, slightly stooping form, broad and high forehead, and a piercing eye. His head was slightly inclined to one side like Wilberforce's. His manners were simple, frank, and dignified, eminently suited to inspire confidence and respect. A single interview would impress a visitor with his affability as a man, his maturity as a scholar, and his rightness as a Christian. The simplicity of character which marked Dr. Alexander is worthy of notice. True greatness is always simple. In Dr. Alexander, it pervaded his taste, language, manners, piety, everything. In his writings, as our readers know, his thoughts were not only readily apprehended, but he could not well be misunderstood. So of his sermons and public appeals. Modesty was a related trait. He seemed to know nothing of his own greatness. One who had been on terms of the closest intimacy for a generation stated in our hearing that he had never heard Dr. Alexander allude to his own influence. Symmetry of character distinguished Dr. Alexander from most men. 
He was not so remarkable for logic or rhetoric or judgment or zeal or learning singly as for an admirable combination which left nothing to be desired in the completeness of the man, the divine, and the Christian. Penetration of mind and an intuitive apprehension of the character and motives of those he met were peculiarly characteristic of Dr. Alexander. He saw through a subject or a person apparently at a glance. Candor and firmness were finely combined. He had not a jot of that pertinacity of opinion and purpose which too often characterizes even good men in their declining years. To the last he seemed as ready for new projects of usefulness. If they were well planned and had obvious bearings on the Redeemer's cause, as he could have been in the days of his youth, oh, how much do the Tract Society and the related board of his own church and sister institutions owe to his unwearied efforts with his pen. His early training and associations gave him a lively sympathy with a mass of plain poor people scattered abroad over our land. For them he loved to write. He knew their heart and could afford to write simply enough to be understood in his teaching. His earnest desire for the salvation of these masses inspired his zeal for the system of colportage and other enterprises which took the direction downward with gospel influences. He wrote and planned and counseled and inspired the zeal of others with unflinching steadfastness. And he still lives and will live while the world stands in his practical writings which are loved and treasured by tens of thousands beyond the pale of his own communion as well as within its bounds. May the Holy Spirit own them for the spiritual good of untold thousands of dying immortals. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.